Well, there's a, uh, something uh, slightly funereal about the, uh, the uh, title of this uh, panel. It's the, uh, uh, the, their last sign of die. <laughs> but hopefully, we're going to get some insight into the Texas House of Representatives and the legislature as a result of uh, uh, what is accumulated up here is at about 40 years of legislative experience. That's not counting mine, which doesn't count at all. Uh, my name is Harvey Kronberg. I'm the uh, publisher and chief poobah over at the Quorum Report and Texas Energy Report. Uh, and I want to welcome you to the uh, uh, TribFest on behalf of the Texas Tribune. I am very happy to welcome you to the fifth annual. Uh, that's what it says there. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce our panelists, uh, because we've got uh, a, a very broad range of experience here. Uh, to my left is Representative uh, Joe Farias uh, from San Antonio. Uh, he has served 10 terms, he, uh, 10 terms, 10 years. He did um, uh, uh, 21, I think it was 21 years in the United States Army. No, I did, no, just three, <laughs> just three. Uh, maybe it was your Hazelwood speech. That, could, have, could have been, could have uh, been, it sounded <laughs> like 20 years. Uh, and, and, and I made reference to his Hazelwood speech. Uh, uh, he hadn't, I, I don't believe he had announced yet that he was retiring, uh, but uh, as many of you know, Hazelwood is a, uh, a scholarship program for vets and their, and their, their progeny, and uh, they were gonna cut the funding on that, and it's very, very rare that uh, somebody can get up on the front mic uh, and actually change votes on the floor. That uh, piece of legislation was supposedly wired. He got up on the front mic, reminded, uh, the, the body about how much we owed our vets, and, uh, and you could watch the votes change uh, in that event. Uh, it was a, a remarkable moment on the House floor. Patricia Harless has been in for a decade. Oh, I do note the fact that we have three legislators, and not one of them is an attorney. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> we have capitalists here. Uh, uh, her background is she's got an auto dealership uh, in North Houston. I believe it's North Houston. Uh, and uh, she sits on the Calendars and State Affairs Committee, um, uh, five terms. Uh, the, uh, I think last session it was uh, energy regulation you chaired? Um, environmental, regulation. environmental regulation. Uh, has a, a broad background inside the legislature um, and uh, obviously well regarded by, by all of her colleagues. Uh, to my far left, which is the first time and only time anybody could ever say that about him, uh, <laughs> is the dean of the three of uh, our lawmakers, uh, Jim Keffer. He's been in the legislature for uh, 10 sessions. This is his 10th session. Uh, before that, he was the first Republican to be elected uh, in his district. He, before that, he was the uh, 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 county party chair, which probably was a very lonely job at the beginning of the process, not so lonely at the end of the process. Right. Uh, he's uh, chairs natural resources uh, and was um, uh, <laughs> my favorite Jim Keffer story is the governor made a tax proposal once upon a time and it the, had no legislative support, but they were really pushing it. Uh, Representative Keffer gets up and offers the legislation verbatim, and if I remember correctly, it didn't get a single vote, uh, which oh, of course shouldn't have bonded your relationship with Governor Perry deeply. Uh, <laughs> um, what we're going to do today is uh, kind of take a look inside the legislature. Oh, by the way, if you want to text any of this, uh, 
Uh, I'm supposed to remind you to silence your phones, but if you want to tweet, the hashtag is hashtag TTF. You guys figure out what the TTF stands for. Um, Texas Tech football. <laughs> I'll never guess where you went. Um, I'm going to start with a, a really kind of a quick softball here because it's rare that you get uh, three uh, members with such longevity, um, uh, distinctive careers that uh, are departing the legislature uh, pretty much on their own terms. Um, so I'm going to start with a couple of softballs and then might ask a little more probing question. But um, when you first got to the legislature, we'll just start with Jim and go this way since you're the old man in the crowd here. <laughs> um, when you first got to the legislature, uh, of course, you went through orientation, you'd gone through a campaign cycle, you'd, you'd um, uh, had all these expectations. Um, uh, uh, what was the, at, when you look back on your first session, what was the single biggest surprise or disappointment that you encountered that did not meet your expectations? I know it's the mists of time, but. Uh, did not meet my expectations. Or disappointed you, um, uh, that surprised you in a, in a not so positive fashion. Gosh, um, well, I was going down to cure cancer, uh, and I <laughs> unfortunately did not do that, I guess that was. But yeah, as a, as a freshman, especially like you said, I was the first Republican. I'd beat a, a Democratic incumbent. Uh, Republicans were still in the minority uh, at that time in the legislature. Um, so there, I guess there was some things that I thought uh, uh, during the campaign, you know, my opponent voted this way or didn't vote this way. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I guess the biggest disappointment is I wasn't so smart, you know, uh, that there was uh, uh, reasons that my opponent did some of the things he did. And you find out when you get up there, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, there is a system and uh, system uh, over the years that have uh, that works very well for Texas and uh, so I, I think it is a very humbling experience uh -huh. to be a freshman and uh, especially when you're coming out of a campaign when everybody's patting you on the head and telling you how smart you are well not the other guys not the other side but the you know the side that uh, uh, helps you win and then you find out that man there's a lot of things to learn and uh, and whatever but uh, it's uh, you know, overall, I, I just got to say, I've, I've enjoyed uh, the, you know, almost every moment of the 20 years I've, I've been in the legislature. Patricia? Um, Joe and I both came in the 2007 session, and that was Speaker Craddock's last session. And being a business person and thrown into this environment, it was all new. And I'll never forget that session. Every week, there was going to be a vote to overthrow the, the speaker. And my, our only child was graduating from high school and I got on a plane to fly to Houston because it was the last week of session where we work, you know, uh -huh. Saturday and Sunday. And as soon as I landed, Charlie Guerin called and said, you need to get back on the plane and come here. We're going to have the speaker vote today. And I said, no, my only son's graduating. You're going to have to have it without me. But I remember going back saying, what the heck did I sign up for? Because it was such a disconcerting time and a lot of fighting. Mm -hmm. And um, We're going to get back to that in just a moment, okay. but um, uh, Joe? Well, uh, coming off a campaign where my opponent spent a million dollars, I kind of had the big head that I could do just about anything. And so one of the things I learned early on was that I served on a board, the school board, for about nine years before I got here. And, and you're working with, with six other members of the board. 
And so you have to convince two or three of them to get things accomplished. And when I got up here, I realized that I was a little fish in a big pond. And you needed to get a lot of support from both sides of the aisle to, to make things happen. And so I struggled with that in the beginning and how the process worked. But, but I think that was my, my most difficult thing is to understand the process of working with seven or six of us and then coming up here and working with 149 and then with the turmoil that was going on, uh, it was difficult for me to, to understand and get, get my arms around this elephant thing that was out on the house floor. <laughs> but that was, uh, I think, one of the things that I remember the most of first getting here. One more easy question. I, I know that nobody here has ever done political research in a place where they serve adult beverages. Uh, but uh, when each of you announced your retirements, needless to say, the cloakroom and the Austin Club and all the various watering holes were ripe with stories about what the real backstory was on your retirement. Why don't, why don't we just take 30 seconds or a minute and, and tell us why you decided to throw in the towel at this particular moment? Well, okay, we'll start over here. That way this time. Uh, I'm glad you asked that because there's been a lot of questions of why I left abruptly. I would mentioned I was leaving early on. My intent was to stay during the whole session, but in between that time, um, I was diagnosed with uh, serious kidney problems. And when I went back from the session, uh, my uh, physician told me that uh, I need to start looking for a kidney donor. And uh, I had back surgery. I got two rods and 10 screws in my back. I had a staph infection two years ago. I ran my office out of my spare bedroom in my house. My staff with their lab computers, we did all the communications from a hospital bed. Nobody knew about this. And to this day, I think this is the first group of folks that have ever heard this story because I keep everything very personal and close to, to the family. I don't let things out like that. And so uh, when I decided to run, um, it was made at the last moment. And I told my staff, I'm turning in my letter on Monday. And so that's how I got here. I had planned on staying at least during the duration of my term, but um, things just uh, didn't go right for me. So I just felt I had to leave early. Patricia? Um, well, first I want to say thank you for sharing, and we'll keep you in our thoughts and prayers because we love you, and you're, you're a friend of ours. So um, thank, thank you, you for sharing. Um, you know, I'm a Republican that believes in term limits. I think that you can stay too long and become part of the problem and not the solution. It's frustrating with all the Republican infighting, and um, I think it's important to have somebody call that out. And it's hard to call it out if you're part of the process. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I would be more effective for the Republican Party outside of the legislature. and. Um, so you, you, know, can, you, you do intend to remain active? Very active. Okay. Jim? Well, I, I guess the same thing times two, I guess, since you're five terms. I'm ten, so I, I think, yeah, term limits. That's right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think, again, as uh, she said, that you can stay too long and become ineffective, and you don't want to do that. And uh, it was a good round number, and uh, I just felt like... Uh, and Leslie, my wife, uh, felt like it was, uh, it was time. The, uh, we made some reference a moment ago to Speaker Craddock. Uh, one of the 
the, of course, the most important vote you cast in the first two months of the legislative session and maybe even for the whole two years of your term is obviously a speaker vote. Uh, we're watching the turmoil in D.C. right now as Speaker Boehner has uh, uh, said, I've had enough and, um, and has announced his resignation. Uh, everyone on the stage was here in the, the turmoil of the 2007 session uh, where it became clear that to some degree Speaker Craddock there was an insurrection, which I should point out, was essentially led by Republican chairman, uh, not the myth that's been spread elsewhere. Um, uh, what is it about, he served three terms. What, what was it about his, his uh, leadership style that, that ended up getting him overthrown and ultimately replaced by, by Strauss? And, you get to go first this time. I do? Yes. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't really know. I was new to the process, mm -hmm. so it was all brand new to me, and I just assumed that's how all sessions were because that's all <laughs> the experience I'd had. For those of you who don't know, there was uh, the, the one night uh, uh, they, they charged uh, the mic another time uh, to, to take over the podium, and another time, they walked off the uh, off the floor, took their keys with them, so nobody could vote on their behalf. It was one of the best dramas in town, and uh, uh, people from Sixth Street were flooding over to the Capitol to sit in the galleries to watch what was happening in the House. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. And that's pretty bad when you leave Sixth Street to come over. <laughs> yeah, come over there. you'd be better at, at yeah. that question. Me? Yes. Well, I guess I was around at the time, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it was never policy. You know, I mean, uh, I think uh, Tom is as conservative and, and uh, you know, as far as, in, in a, I'm pretty much in agreement. I was chairman of Ways and Means at that time, and it just boiled down to management style. And it just boiled down to uh, not uh, uh, trusting or allowing uh, your, your uh, your committee chairs to do their job, and uh, it just uh, it just gets to a point where uh, when that uh, when that hammer is so tight uh, that uh, there's going to be a um, the, the pressure has to be let off somehow somewhere, and uh, there were uh, a few of the Republicans that uh, decided that the time had come to to uh, see what could be done, and we didn't know what the outcome. Obviously, there wasn't any script mm -hmm. there. But uh, uh, to uh, get it done. But one thing that make I, I think made our even though it was pell mell and every day was different, there was always a goal, and we always had a person that out of the group was going to be the speaker candidate. We didn't know if, it was gonna be, if we were going to be successful or not, but that was going to be the case. So I think that makes what we did different than what's going on in D.C. right now because they certainly. Uh, for whatever reason, Boehner is gone, but there is no, there's nobody there that, you know, was set up to take the place. I mean, it's, it's in, very much in disarray. Now, they, I heard somebody say, well, they're going out listening to their constituents right now. Uh, I wouldn't give them that kind of thing. I mean, there, there should, you know, you don't leave the house, uh, an institution like that, uh, headless. You know, you, 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 if you're gonna make a change, you have a plan. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we had a plan, and they don't. But just one other quick observation about the way the House works. Uh, the, the 
one of the great flaws in the Boehner exit strategy is that he's leaving his leadership team behind. Um, uh, and whoever inherits this has got somebody else's leadership team yeah. that that, yeah. uh, that uh, uh, has to make the operation work. So the the in 2003, when the Republicans took over uh, the the Texas House of Representatives, they had 88 Republicans out of 150, and with each successive election, their numbers dwindled um, to the point where in the 2009 session. Uh, we suddenly found the House was a virtual tie between uh, Democrats and Republicans, 76 Republicans, 74 Democrats. Um, uh, and for all practical purposes, that is a functional tie. Um, it was your second term by that, that point. Um, how did you see the speaker politics playing out and the role of the Democrats, and did it, did how did the, just how did the world look to from from your perspective, uh, given all the tumult? Well, coming into the '07 session, I'd heard about the turmoil and the difficulties with the Speaker credit. And uh, when I got here, I realized how bad it was. And then in '09, when there was an opportunity to select another Speaker, uh, Speaker Strauss' name rose to the top, and. Me being from San Antonio is an automatic for me. You know, why wouldn't we want to have a speaker from San Antonio mm -hmm. at the helm? <clears throat> and the leadership style between the two was, was so contrast. And in the in the 09 session, it was so pleasant to serve. And it, it, it's probably been the best session out of the five I served because it's, it's always good to be very close in the, in the split of the vote because you don't need to go out and fetch 25 or 30 votes to get them to get support your bill. You're almost there. And, and we, it seemed like everybody worked together when the numbers were closer. Everybody seemed to work together to get things accomplished. Once it went the other direction and we went to 102 to 48, uh, it just turned the other direction. And it was very difficult for everybody. And then the only way that our party can can get things accomplished is sometimes by by blocking things by by not letting them pass through you know maybe maybe chubbing or whatever you know we mm -hmm. got criticized for chubbing but when when those are the tools that you have at hand you have to use them and during that 09 session we didn't have that we were actually working together y'all both y'all remember that the, a year that we, we got a lot of things done a lot of things were happening uh, and then it changed the other direction, and, and here we are again, uh, back in the maybe the 07 session, in the turmoil in the House. But now it's just not the Speaker, but it's just people that are so far right that they're not willing to work with anybody. Uh, by the way, we are going to reserve the last 10 or 15 minutes for questions. So, um, uh, you know, think of anything that you'd like to ask these folks. Be easy questions. Uh, of course. Looking at some of the folks in this crowd, I would doubt it. <laughs> Uh, your world must have turned upside down to a certain degree when you suddenly found 102, uh, was it 102 or finally 103 Republicans in the 2011 session. Um, um, I can't think of as violent a partisan swing uh, in the Texas House uh, any time that I've covered it. It's always been incremental. Right. That one was, was, went from 76 to 103. Um, how did how did the dynamics change? 
Well, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, policy, uh, agendas, uh, anything that uh, one party ever wanted to do, all of a sudden, you know, it, it's out there to do. Uh, one thing I'm glad about our House and the leadership that has always been in the House is that you temper, uh, you know, you have to look at, okay, you know, we, we are talking about the whole state. We are talking about, uh, uh, you know, how we're going to deal with this thing. But, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there, there are, there's a lot of freedoms there, and you've got to be very careful of what you wish for, what you ask for. I mm -hmm. mean, you've got to really look at it, uh, is it uh, long-term, uh, you know, what is the vision long-term? And uh, that, that's a, that's By a, 2011, you're obviously now a veteran lawmaker. <laughs> um, and one of the things, I, I've been doing this since uh, 89, and, and caucuses haven't, Republican caucus haven't been particularly significant in Texas, partially because we only have five months every two years to get our business done, which differentiates us from Washington and almost every other uh, legislature out Fortunately. there. Fortunately. Um, did, did the, the dynamics of, uh, or the consequence of the, the caucus change um, dramatically? Did it become more important, or was it um, uh, a, a different dynamic of, of any, that meant anything? I think uh, the caucus, the Republican caucus, is always important. And how effective it is depends on the chair of the caucus. Mm -hmm. And during that time, we had some good chairs and not so good chairs. I mean, you look at what Tan Parker worked with both sides, trying to figure out a way to bring people to the table. I think he was very effective. Larry Taylor did a great job as the caucus chair. And, um, you know, there, I, I don't think Senator Creighton was as effective because it was a little less, mm -hmm. you know, cohesive. And it was our way or no way. And I think that it's important for the Democratic members to feel like they got something out of it. So you've got to have a chair that has the relationship to sit down and have the conversations. Just a quick follow-up. In some ways, the, the, the most intense arguments in the legislature are Republican on Republican. You're exactly oh, yeah. right. Um, of course. So did that play itself out in the caucus, or was it on the floor, or was it just pervasive? I think it's probably on the floor. It's mm -hmm. less in the caucus. Okay. Um, yeah, on the floor, uh, it's it's a lot more relevant and evident. In the in that year, 2011, the um, uh, obviously uh, Scott Hochberg said, uh, uh, a former lawmaker from Houston, uh, they've lost what 20. Uh, uh, members at that point, uh, uh, Democrats. He, he was referring to himself as uh, as a Holocaust survivor, uh, and he and very disoriented. He was an incredible member. Republicans would go to him on education issues because he was a fair and honest arbiter, and um, uh, and you could take his word to the bank, whichever party you went to. In your caucus, what was the the reaction to suddenly going from a virtual tie? to, um, to uh, uh, such lopsided numbers. Uh, uh, was, was there any kind of, and you'd lost your caucus chair, as a matter of fact. Um, was there any kind of strategy for dealing with uh, this brave new world, or um, was it the session more characterized by shell shock? Uh, well, I, I think the biggest thing was that uh, 
was, was a shell shock. You know, you just like throwing cold water in your face. Now look where we're at. And I think our strategy was to work with the speaker mm -hmm. and try to get the speaker to, to work with us and, and, and help us with, with what we wanted to push our agenda and trying to get a speaker that would meet us halfway mm -hmm. on some of these issues. And so we worked very hard with, with meeting with Speaker Strauss to try and get things done because we know we didn't have the numbers. And so we figured if he was a fair man as we thought he was, and we helped get him in in the, in the 09 session that, that we could work with him. And, and, it, and it did work out well mm -hmm. for some of us, but it, it's not always gonna go how, how either party wants it. But if, if you're able to, to get your fair share of the bushel of apples, you don't need the whole bushel. You just need to get a few apples and, 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 and serve the purpose that we're here for, and that's to serve the people of Texas. And so uh, that was our strategy, is to work with the speaker and try to get some things accomplished that way. The, the um, over to Jim here now. The um, I'm supposed to be referring to you guys as a representative. I just can't bring myself to do that's, it. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, hey, you. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, where was I going to go before I entertain my own darn self? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, the the that 2010 election represented the in a sense the ascendancy, maybe the peak of the Tea Party. I, use, I say Tea Party Chamber of Commerce, it's purely metaphoric, uh, but Tea Party Chamber of Commerce split inside uh, the Republican Party. Um, and um, uh, it was a very raucous session on the, on the floor. Part of that is because of, uh, there's always been outside money affecting the legislature and outside forces affecting the legislature. But um, uh, has, Describe for us how it impacted that session and whether it's changed. And whether it's changed? Yeah. Whether the, the impact of outside money has been... Oh, I, I think the impact of outside money is just getting uh, worse. It's growing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, um, it is a shame. I mean, I think the worst thing that happened was outside money could, uh, could in, be involved in the speaker's race. Uh, outside influences, mm -hmm. outside, you know, because that's always before that, that was within the members of the House to choose their speaker for, you know, and, and remembering that the speaker more or less is a traffic cop, you know, mm -hmm. as far as his position uh, to make sure that, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but, but uh, chairman of the committees or, you know, handling, or the committees are handling what they're supposed to do. And so that got blown out of proportion, I think, with, uh, you know, bad, good, or indifferent. It happened. And so now you have those outside influences even on the speaker's race. But I, I, uh, I think that, uh, that uh, the money that is available for uh, and, and the, the amount of money that a campaign costs today uh, is really getting to uh, unbelievable levels. You know, again, it's democracy. It's my money. It's... Uh, uh, however you want to do things. I mean, I understand all the uh, issues there and stuff that goes with it, but uh, I hope people at some point in time will, will take back, uh, step back and take a breath on, uh, on what kind of money is being spent on some of these elections from outside the district to influence a, a house race, and that's what we're talking about here is house races, a house race uh, uh, that's not even within their district, uh, but the amount of money that's available. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think uh, it's very lopsided. 
and I think it's a, uh, um, on a very, very bad road. The, the, we, everybody here, I think, probably knows that the primary is the only election that really matters for the most part in Texas. Most part. In both parties. We're looking at, poss at, at in, in the Texas House of Representatives, probably no more than a shift of six, if that many, um, uh, because of, of the way the districts have been drawn. Um, what has that done to the primaries that you've been fighting in over the last four or five, well, over the last five <laughs> cycles, from your first primary to your... Well, luckily, I haven't had primary since the first one. Oh, I didn't realize. And, um, I you had a but I'll oh. tell you what I've seen from the time that we first came into the legislature to now. Um, in the Republican Party, there's the Tea Party movement, or Libertarians, and they call us rhinos, which stands for Republicans in name only. And we talk about this often. They're really the rhinos. They're more libertarian or more Tea Party, but they can't win as a libertarian. So they run as a Republican. And the frustration as a member that's in an unincorporated part of Harris County, we're 1.8 million people. In another year, we're going to have more population than the city of Houston. I've got to pass some stuff. I've got to pass some regulation stuff. But it's impossible now with, you know, if I, I go through county affairs and it's all the no votes on there. So I can't even get a bill out of committee. And the new generation of Republicans coming up is that government and rules are wrong. And the only way you're being true to the 5% that elect you, the 5% that show up and vote in primaries, is if, um, you say no to everything. And so it's really difficult when you live in an area that needs some type of regulation to get that passed. And that's what I see now more than ever, plus the new Republicans coming up. They're like a frat house. I was embarrassed <laughs> on the House floor this session. Always in the past, when it gets late in session or late nights, people start acting up. But I mean, this would be at 11 o'clock in the morning where you would go up to the front mic to say you concur with Senate amendments and the frat boy section would call you a coward or they call points of order sitting at their desk, don't even have the decorum to go to the back mic. And he would know because he sits over there with all those frat boys. <laughs> you know, she, she brought up the rhino. You know, I've heard uh, lately uh, going around that uh, there's another uh, uh, saying there that's uh, they're libertarians imitating imitating actual Republicans, liars. So uh, <laughs> so that's something that uh, has been going around also. That sounds like a bumper sticker to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about the dynamics in in your caucus? You've got the turnover in the legislature in the Texas House over this decade has been as high as any any period. I've been doing this almost 30 years, and in three decades, I've never seen so much turnover in, in a in a uh, a body. You've got a uh, bunch of new members, a lot of younger members. Uh, do you have the same kind of of clashes uh, going on inside? I, I, I don't think we do. And one of the biggest reasons is we don't have the outside money dictating to whoever they want to get elected uh, on how they're going to vote. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our membership is uh, very independent in their votes and you can see as the votes are taken during the session that we would jump across, mm -hmm. we all do. And, and that because there's, there's nothing outside that's 
saying, I have a scorecard on you. If you don't do it this way, we're going we're gonna to find an opponent for you in a primary. And you mentioned the frat boys. Yeah, I sit around all of them, and <laughs> I can tell you plenty of stories of what I've heard. I think the most, the most disturbing story I can say about them is that during one of the sessions, they were killing bills, our, our bills. I'll say our Democratic bills. And the, the gentleman that sat in front of me was playing taps on his computer. Like when they bury a veteran, they play it. And so every time a bill would die, he would play it. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And I finally asked him, are you playing that or is it your desk mate? He said, no, that's me, Joe. I said, well, you know what? I said, you're being very disrespectful. I know you can, y'all can kill any bill you want because you have the numbers. But please don't use that to show your success in killing a bill. And the sad part, is it's gotten worse since then. Mm -hmm. This was in the, in the, in the 83rd and 84th. It got worse, not with the music and that sort of stuff, but the cheering and the calling cowards from the back being so disrespectful just because they can be. Uh, calling for a recorded vote or calling for whatever from, from not even getting up, as Patricia was saying, not, not to even have respect. And even when uh, a person at the front mic is saying the, the prayer in the morning, some of these young folks that are being elected are so disrespectful to, to the people on the floor, especially a minister who's, who's coming to, to open our session with a prayer. They're not willing even to respect that. So how would they respect the process if they don't even respect that? So I really struggle with that mm -hmm. sitting around uh, these folks and, and having to hear it every day is for 140 days is very uh, frustrating and, and, and you've got to control your your temperament because you want to get things done, but yet you don't want to continue to hear this. And I hope in, in, the, in the future that, that that changes. If anything, that they start having respect and, and respect the process and respect the, the House members that, that are in there because they're elected just like they are, except we don't have the outside money helping us. The most significant thing, I, in my opinion, we, we've been talking a lot about money um, and its impact on the process, but frankly, if there is a corruption, uh, to me, the corruption starts with redistricting. Uh, and it is in the interest of either party to obviously maximize their numbers within the rules. But when you end up with uh, 150 seats, 144 of which are predetermined as to which partisan um, situation, uh, uh, which party is going to dominate that district? Uh, you have an argument only between the right and the farther right, and the left and the farther left. And the truth is, if you if you pull most Americans, uh, you're going to find that they're center right on some things and center left on other things. And so there's, given the nature of redistricting and the emphasis on the primary, it's almost impossible to get to create a, a center inside the legislature. Knowing what you know now and the fact that you're not coming back. Do you think that, a, I'm not going to ask if you think a commission is possible or some other redistricting process is possible in Texas, but is it desirable? Uh, uh, Senator Whitworth brought that up, I believe, mm -hmm. several years ago when I first got in, and it's been pushed. Uh, my only concern is it doesn't matter if you have a commission or, or you have the legislature picket, uh, there's still going to be partisanship. How do you, you can't select nine members of a commission and not be it partisan. It's just not going to happen. Uh, I, I think the way, the way we did it in Bear County, 
is that they get us all together and they say, okay, you all make up your mind what you want and how your district's to look. And even in, in Barrett County, because, you know, growth and everything, everybody's pushing each other. Uh, my district is probably one of the weirdest shape in Barrett County. I represent 67 square miles of Barrett County. I touch 10 municipalities and 11 school districts, uh, five senators, four congressmen, <laughs> all, all in my district. And so, but, but, that's, but that's our fault because we drew the lines. We, we as members of the delegation of Barrett County drew our lines. I, I don't know what the answer would be, but it doesn't matter how you draw it. If you can keep partisanship out of it, then I think you would have a successful, a good method of identifying a fair district for, for members. Let me add one more element before I toss it over to the Republican side over there, and that is that uh, the, only con the only election mandated in the Constitution is the first Tuesday in November. Um, yet we, in Texas, uh, pick most of our political leadership the first Tuesday in March, and most Texans don't know that. Um, uh, adding that element to the fact that you could that you make a constitutional argument that 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 uh, anything that undermines the general election um, should have at least some constitutional sanction on it. You would think, or I would think, anyway. Um, I'm going to add, continue the question. Do you think it's desirable to change our redistricting process given the direction that we've taken? And I think every state has the same, it fights the same fight. But I, I don't think it would change. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many factors. Jim served on redistricting. I served on it. Did you serve on it? No. There's so many factors that are out of our control. Mm -hmm. There's so many protected districts. Mm -hmm. I remember colleagues coming to me saying, I want this area of your district. Well, you click that area in the software, and the number of minorities, if it's a majority minorities, then they can't have it. I mean, it has right. to go to a minority member. So it it's one of those things that I know that they want to blame the Republicans when we're in control on gerrymandering and the Democrats when they're in control for that. But the districts are with within the guidelines of what we're required to do. And it's like you said, there may be six seats at play, but the rest of them are mostly Republican or mostly Democrat. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and the one thing we learned during redistricting, it's not Republican versus Democrat or rural versus urban. It's about me. <laughs> You're messing with me. And so each 150 member is out to protect their area. So That's right. I, I don't, I, you know, I remember Jeff uh, brought that up several times to go to a commission. Uh, and matter of fact, I, uh, I looked at working with him in the house on it. Uh, one of those times, but the more you look at it and the more we got into it, I, I just don't know what the answer is. I don't know that there is a good answer because there are states that have gone to commissions and they still have lawsuits and they still have disruption. And they, so, you know, I mean, it, like you said, we're not going to get away from and shouldn't, I guess, from partisanship. I mean, that's nature of the yeah. beast, I guess. But um, I just don't know what the true answer is. I think Texas has been fortunate, even though we do have the extremes that Texas, because of the way we are set up, you know, that we have Democratic chairs under a Republican majority and vice versa when that happens, that uh, we're able to still move coalitions together to move policy forward. 
And I think that's one thing, again, we see D.C. can't do because they don't do it that way. And uh, I think Texas is very, I mean, uh, you know, you go to any other state, and if you're trying to explain how Texas does their job, and you say that there is a Democratic chair under a Republican speaker, they can't believe it. They, they think you're crazy. They think, golly, how do you all do that? You know, what in the world are you talking about? But again, if you look at the history, that is how Texas, I think, has been successful. And I hope, I hope uh, beyond everything that we continue on down that road. One quick story, going all the way back to Pete Laney, a uh, Democratic speaker, uh, uh, two speakers ago, uh, went to a speaker's conference and he said, everybody's saying what they've done new in their, their body. Uh, and he said, well, we got computers for everybody, uh, laptops, uh, so they can actually take stuff home with them, et cetera. And apparently everybody else at the table, the other 49 speakers were aghast that they actually gave laptop computers to Republicans. <laughs> Uh, before we open this up, we're going to go to, to, in about five minutes, I'm going to see if anybody has any, any uh, questions here. Um, but the, um, uh, you raised the interesting question about power sharing. Uh, uh, Governor Dan Patrick at one point was, uh, it was attributed to him saying that he wasn't going to have any uh, Democratic chairs. He obviously changed his mind. And, uh, with the entire new cast of statewide office holders that we've got right now, you've only been able to go through one session with this new leadership. But uh, uh, how, have relations with the Senate changed in any fundamental way that, that you can see? Is there a relationship? Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Well, that was, that was almost as good as Hillary Clinton's no. <laughs> it was a lot more difficult last session. I mean, it seemed like the House and the Senate fought more and for no reason. I mean, you just really, we were wanting pretty much the same things, but we didn't want to get there the same way. So mm -hmm. there was a lot more fighting. Is there? It, it, and I think, like she said, needless fighting. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So I, conference I, committees were fundamentally different uh, this last, mm -hmm. last go round, mm -hmm. from your perspective? Well, I, I found it more difficult this past session to, to work with the Senate in trying to get things accomplished. Um, changing the, uh, the, uh, the vote mm -hmm. in order to bring bills forward, that was a big change mm -hmm. uh, because they tried to block everything. Again, it goes back to this is what we can do. We have the power. We can do whatever we want. So once they changed that 80-20 so to, get, to get bills to move forward, I mean, that really changed the the, the, the tempo of, of how these bills were going to flow because there was also a lot of fighting on that side uh, mm -hmm. trying to, to, to get things accomplished. And so I think it just spilled over into the House and, and then we have this clash between the House and the Senate and we can't get things accomplished because we can't uh, uh, be grown-ups about it. And then last question before I open it up for any questions that are out here. Um, this was uh, uh, Governor Abbott's first session. Um, uh, he had a compelling victory in his general election, obviously. Uh, no opponent in, in, in the primary to speak of. Uh, grade his performance as a freshman governor uh, dealing with a, a Republican-dominated legislature. You want to start? Who, me? Yeah. I say B+. Plus. 
And where was the shortfall to get him to an A? I just think, again, it's just a learning curve. Okay. I, I, I don't think that, uh, I think he's going to get better. I think he will get better. I think he's got a great heart. I think he wants to do the right job, the right thing. I, I think he's got a lot of things coming at him that he's going to have to learn how to prioritize where the important arrows are, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as far as how he's going to uh, deal his, with his, uh, with his uh, office. But uh, I think uh, certainly he's a, a good guy, and, and uh, I think he's a, a great change, and uh, I think um, he'll do well. You were I think he got an A. Yeah. And um, I, I tell you what I was impressed with. His staff was on the House floor almost all the time. And that was really nice because uh, under Perry, he, you would never see anyone until it got close to the end and he wanted something and then they were down there yelling at you because we hadn't done it. Mm -hmm. But Abbott had staff on the House floor mm -hmm. almost all the time. Um, a perfect example of his leadership during the pre-K debate, we were in a Republican caucus meeting and a lot of the Republicans did not want to vote for that because they thought it was expanding government. And Abbott came to us and he said, okay, if you don't want to vote for it for the kids or because it's the right thing to do, vote for it because I'm asking you and it's important to me. And I thought, wow, that's such a different leadership style. And I do want to say one other thing about the Senate in the House this session. The Senate had a list of priorities, a lot of priorities that they wanted to pass. And several of those, we didn't get to see them until the second week in May. You know, they kind of sat on it and they kept saying, if the House moves, it will move forward with it. Well, then they sent it over to the House. We hadn't done anything. And then blame us for it not passing. So the House got a lot of blame for stuff that they wanted to kill but they didn't want to take responsibility for killing and they wanted it to die in the house. And I think it goes back to the fact that they're frustrated because Speaker Strauss doesn't answer to anyone but the members. I mean, there's no outside group that he worries about. Mm -hmm. He focuses on making sure the members are successful and the house is driven by the members and that drives them crazy. <laughs> so I had to say that. Want to add anything? Well, I, uh, I had the privilege of working with the governor's office on one particular bill on the veterans court bill that we had uh, traveled over 3,500 miles in the state of Texas visiting different courts and trying to, to, to uh, find a, 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 a court that would be fair across and would all be practicing the same processes instead of one court doing one thing, expunging and the other court not expunging. And so we, we worked hard on that bill for, for months and months and months, the staff did. And at the end of the day, uh, he didn't like part of it. And to me, it was not a, a, a deal killer, but yet he took it out. Mm -hmm. And in order for us to get that bill passed, it was almost like either you do it or, you, or your bill's gonna die. And so we had to find that compromise and we got the bill passed, but we had to take that part out that was very uh, important to our veterans who commit a DWI, they go through the program, and then uh, they can't get it expunged because the DAs don't want to. And the judges were telling us from different courts that 
they, they needed to expunge these, these, these misdemeanor violations, but yet because of the outside influence, the DAs convinced him that it wasn't um, a good bill, mm -hmm. so we had to pull it. And that's the only dealings I had with, with the governor's office, but, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about veterans, and so maybe that's where my heart uh, is right now, is that I wasn't able to get that whole bill in as we wanted to get it in. But, but they did come meet with us. You know, they, they sat with us and they worked with us, but at the end yeah. of the day, it was, here's what you have to do. Yep. Your turn. Do we have anybody that has any questions? Uh, we just ask simply that you don't filibuster. Uh, and if you have a directed towards a certain member, you know, I'll, re I'll repeat the question after you. Uh, sure, thank you. And thank you all very much for your service. Brandon already with the Realtors. I just want to know over the past 10 or 20 years, depending on whose answers, what is your, what do you feel like your biggest, your proudest moment is? And then on the other side, and maybe Representative Farias just alluded to this, what is something that you wish you could have gotten done and didn't? Did everybody hear the question? Okay. Did all. Can we go first? Sure. I guess my biggest accomplishment I feel the best about was Hazelwood. And we were able to do work months on that with staff, and endless hours, working with uh, the, the, the different veterans organizations. And the most disappointing is I served five terms and never was able to get anything passed on payday lending. And I think it's a, it's a big issue that we need to address uh, for the families in Texas is regulating the payday lenders that are just abusing uh, the system and exploiting people that are in need. And so not being able to accomplish anything with payday lending, I think, is uh, one that uh, will, will just stick with me for, for a long time. Oh, she's punting to you. Me? <laughs> uh, I, uh, being able to uh, pass uh, secret was, I think, my the, the most I think, I hope legacy, I hope uh, we'll do the most for our state and uh, the world, I hope, I guess, to say that. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, that my biggest disappointment is school finance, uh, that we, in 2000, what, six, seven, when we went through all, we went through on school finance and they all patted us on the head and said, what we're doing will we'll, we'll take, take us down the road 30 years and, you know, we'll finally uh, keep out of the courts, and here we are this few years uh, later, and uh, here, right back. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that's uh, and I know there's myriads of reasons why uh, we are where we are, but still, uh, we're not being able to find a formula or a way to keep us out of court and, uh, and to keep our education process moving forward. Um, I think looking back, there's always stuff you wish you would have done. Um, I think probably every session I was able to pass something that was important to my community. And I don't gauge my service based on my success in Austin because I've always felt, and the one thing that I'll miss about the job is when people in my community come to me with a problem, having the ability to pick up the phone and help them solve the problem or direct them to the right person because there's so much red tape that they have to go through an average citizen. So I, I base my service in my community as my success, and I'm very happy with that. Mm -hmm. Any disappointments? Uh, no. Oh. Yes, sir. I was going to ask a similar question, but oh. I'm going to, so I'll flip it the other way and say, what passed that looking back 
you wish had never passed. <laughs> we'll start over on this side. Only 20 years of legislative history to think Why through. Passed. I wish <laughs> hadn't passed. Wow. Uh, I'm okay with a Pecos cantaloupe being a martyr <laughs> for the state melon. Um, uh, I know I'm gonna have to think of that. That's a that's a great question. I don't. Uh, you try to get. I guess you get those out of your mind. I don't know if you dwell on <laughs> on those. Uh, let me think about it for a minute. What what in the thoughts? world would that have been? Well, for me, and I know it's very un-Republican to say this, um, the hardest vote that I've ever had to take in the legislature was open carry. And I, you know, I have my handgun license. I carry my gun with me most places. But I have fear about what that's going to do to the future of our state. Not that guns kill people, but people kill people. And I have said a million times, I don't want to go to a restaurant with my great nieces and nephew with some guy with a gun on his belt and then, or go to the restaurant that says no weapons posted, period, when before I might have had my gun concealed with me. And now that's going to be the place that all the bad guys want to hit up. Mm -hmm. So that was the hardest vote I've ever taken as a Republican. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but... I, when I took that vote, I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Ah. Uh, I, I, at the time, I thought I was taking a good vote. And after a few years of looking at it, I realized that maybe I shouldn't have voted for it. And maybe a lot of people in here won't agree with me, but there's a bill that we passed that if you uh, sexually abuse a child, the, the sentence is 25 to 99 years. I believe we were asking for life without parole. Death so, penalty. Yeah, Jessica's I think it was wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And so I voted for that bill. But then after going back and reflecting on, on, on crimes that are committed, sometimes there's false accusations out there. And an individual can automatically face a 25-year sentence, automatic, and, and, and there's no process in, in the system that, that would allow a judge to say, you know what, this crime does not deserve 25 to 99. This crime should be five years or probation. But because of the statute we've established, we've, we've actually handcuffed the, the, the courts and they have no choice but to give the 25 to 99. And I think we would have, I'd have felt better if we'd have allowed some, some flexibility on the, on, the, on the judge's side to be able to decide whether the crime did fit the 25 to 99 years. And so that's one, one vote I wish I could have mm -hmm. had the foresight to look down the road and how it would have affected uh, the, the courts and the, the individuals who are accused of these heinous crimes. I see one last question Hi, here. so my question is related to the two of you that mentioned um, that Part of the reason you're leaving from the legislature is the infighting in the Republican Party. So as a voter, why should I continue to have faith in the, you know, the, the Texas Republican Party if, as legislators, that was part of the reason you're leaving? Well, um, I'm not sure it's, that's phased correctly. I don't know that Jim said that's part of the reason he's leaving. I know it's the frustrating part. But if you think about it, in the Republican primary in my district, unincorporated Harris County, 
5% of the registered voters show up and vote. That's not a good representation of the voters. And I feel like I'm going to be more effective in increasing participation in the Republican primary being off the ballot versus on it. And that's my goal. Because if we get more people to vote, the better quality of the person you'll have if there's more voters in the primaries. And we look up in November and say, I don't want to vote for either, either party. It's because we haven't per participated in the primary level. So I think until we get people um, aware and understanding that they have to vote in a primary, even if they're a Democrat in a Republican district and there's not a contested Democrat seat, you need to be voting in the Republican primary. That's how I get elected a lot of times is because my constituents that are Democrats vote in the Republican primaries because they know there's not competitive races on the Dem Democratic side. So um, I think there's a lot to be um, excited about in the future because people like me are getting out of the inside and on the outside. Yeah, you know, and it's frustrating, but it's historical. I mean, it, you can't go back. I mean, parties have always been divided. You know, you've always had a, a conservative wing, a liberal wing, you know, whatever, whatever the party is. So, you know, history is history. I think today the difference is everything's so immediate, you know, and so out there, all, you know, for everybody to see. But, you know, if you believe in what you believe, I mean, if you believe in, you know, low taxes and low government, you know, everything the Republican Party is supposed to stand for, you go out and fight for it. I mean, I, I just gird your loins and get in, uh, get in there a little bit, uh, get a little bit stronger. Uh, you know, we're not going away. Uh, we may be leaving elected uh, life, but uh, as Patricia says, we're going to be very active in uh, promoting the Republican Party as we feel, you know, I guess I will say, as I feel in my vision what the Republican Party ought to be like. So, uh, uh, so it's, it's, uh, you don't, you might, you might change horses, but you don't give up the fight. Last two questioners. Thank we'll you. start with over here. And Mine, then, mine's and then a little bit on here. the lighter side. Is there any kind of like funny story or something that's like just a humorous day on the floor or somebody, <laughs> one of your colleagues, like left you a funny note from something, anything that comes to mind that would you be. Gotta, you got to watch out for open mics. Entertaining. There you go. <laughs> I'll tell you my first session. My husband's here on the front row, and he's been um, a great supporter and the reason I've been able to do this job. But... Edmund Kemple was still alive and he was serving in the house and he and my husband would talk about golf and he said, oh my goodness, you're going to love Patricia being in the legislature because you'll get to go play golf at all the best places and you'll get <laughs> golf balls and all this neat stuff. You'll love it. So after my second session, uh, Kemple and Sam were hanging out together and my husband said, you know, She's been there two sessions, and I haven't gotten the first golf ball or the first invite to play <laughs> golf. And he said, all I can tell you, she's voting wrong. <laughs> Jim? Uh, every, every session, I try and find a bill that we can have, get our, our hands on and, and make it a, a fun bill and say, you know what? We want to try this, see if it works. And so I carried a snake bill for, for two sessions. I don't know, Jim, if you remember my snake bill. Uh, uh, they prohibited snake collectors to collect snakes along the interstates uh, for the herpers, the herpetologists. And so I carried a bill and, and got it passed. 
And so now they're real happy that they're able to go out and hunt snakes. And, and I went out there one night just to experience it myself out to West Texas. I drove out to Sanderson and went out there at night, in the middle of the night, with lights, looking for snakes. Because if I'm going to carry this bill, I'm going to see what it's like. Well, it's not fun walking out of the weeds looking for snakes. And the second one I carried was uh, this past session. As a matter of fact, I got them on right now. Is I carried a, a hemp bill to allow uh, the, the growth of industrial hemp. If you all are aware of hemp, it's part of the cannabis family. And uh, it, it was fun trying to explain to people, you can't smoke my shoes. <laughs> you know, I can't give you a shoelace to roll and smoke. And so uh, the media called me and said, what about hemp? And I said, look, you can get a joint the size of a telephone pole and smoke it, and it's not going to get you high, so don't worry about hemp. It's not marijuana. It's a part of the cannabis family. So we had a lot of fun with that particular bill and just sharing with people what, what hemp did and what it is. And uh, we almost got it through. We, we got it out of committee, and, but, but that, that was a fun time for me. And so I've got my hemp shoes. So if we, if we, if we decriminalize, will it be the, the Joe Farias? Never mind. No. <laughs> yeah, did you have another one you want to add, or just an open mic is a dangerous place to be? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. And I think our last questioner. Hi. Um, hate to end on a cynical note, but um, two questions. Do any of you plan to be lobbyists um, next session or beyond? And the second question is, um, you mentioned a lot of good reasons to, to get out, but I'm wondering if the 10-year um, need to stay in 10 years to maximize retirement um, benefits, it, it played a part in your decision. No and no. <laughs> no, uh, it's eight years before you get retirement, years. and um, no, I don't plan on lobbying. Myself, I was already retired when I got here. I was 61 when I got here. So I was already retired, so now I get to retire a second time. But I retired because of other reasons I mentioned earlier. But, but I am going to lobby. But I'm only going to lobby one person. And that will be my son if he's able to take my place. Because he's running in, in my spot in District 118. So if I lobby anybody, it'll be that one. So I only lobby one, <laughs> one member. No, I don't plan to lobby. And if, if that was the case, for the uh, retirement, I really miscounted. I should have left a long time ago <laughs> instead of waiting around as long as I did. So uh, uh, no and no. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Keffer, Patricia Harless, Joe Farias. I've, I've covered this process for a long time, and we're looking at three very distinguished members of the Texas House of Representatives, and we're going to miss you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.